WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 95. The 2021 WSL Challenger Series has been completed with the Michelob Ultra Pure Gold Challenger Series event at Haleiwa wrapping up over the past two days, won by a resurrected and terrifying John John Florence, as well as a huge statement by Betty Lou Sakura Johnson. In addition to the impressive performances by the winners, this event locked in the qualifiers for the Elite 2022 WSL Championship Tour. And those qualifiers are, on the women's side, Gabriella Bryan, Brisa Hennessy, Caitlin Simmers, India Robinson, Betty Lou Sakura Johnson, and Luana Silva. And on the men's side, Zeke Lau, Connor O'Leary, Jake Marshall, Nat Young, Imai Kalani DeVault, Callum Robson, Luca Messinas, Liam O'Brien, Zhao Xianka, Jackson Baker, Samuel Pupo, and Carlos Munoz. Congratulations to all of them. What a season, and 2022 is going to kick off with a bang at the Billabong Pipe Pro starting January 29th. We're all going to be there. All right, episode 95. Today's guest is someone who has led one of the more gypsy-esque experiences of any surfer I've ever met. A youth spent in the remote jungle of Costa Rica before transplanting to Oahu and then spending her summers in Fiji all led to her rapid development into one of the world's best surfers. Qualifying for the Elite Championship Tour in 2019 and experiencing moderate success navigating the non-season of 2020, falling off tour in Mexico this year, 
but then rallying and requalifying for the CT in 2022 via her performance on this year's Challenger Series. We talk about all this and more. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Costa Rica's Brisa Hennessy. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, it's got He's like, you look too pretty on the wave, get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's up to your boxing. So we have Costa Rica's Brisa Hennessy <laughs> on the lineup today. I'm really excited and it's in person, which I don't remember when the last one I did in person was, but I'm, I'm really honored you joined me for this. So thank you. Thanks so much, Dave. No, I absolutely love the lineup. And like you said, it's really special to see people in person and I think to see everyone's smiles and especially be really close to the location that we're going to be surfing at next, Haliva. We're across the street, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we are. It's a big, big secret. We're across the street from Hollywood. But it was so nice because I saw you last night in the water briefly and um, it's just nice to connect in person and congratulations on your Challenger Series season. I'm sure it was, um, it's just been such a crazy couple of years. It must be a relief coming into Hawaii, which feels like a bit of a second home for you, knowing that you're on tour next year and knowing that you just get to go out there and perform. Yeah. Wow. Um, I know I feel, I feel so grateful to be in the position I'm in right now. Um, and I honestly have to say, I really didn't expect to be here mm. right now in this position. And I think that's honestly everything. I think the this year I put so much expectation on myself and expectation on a breakthrough, on a result, on a wave. Mm. While I kind of lost myself, you know, within that, I always go back to one of my favorite philosophers, um, Alan Watts. He talked about how life is not a journey. And I found that so interesting because <laughs> I feel like I've been preaching that my whole life, right? right? Like life is a journey. Like well, this sure. whole process is a journey while you kind of like lose yourself within that, like this destination that it's right. hard to get to. Right. So when you say you didn't expect yourself to be in this position, are you talking about in terms of of having successfully requalified? Did you kind of give that up after a very topsy-turvy CT season? It didn't work out the way you wanted. Were you just lowering your expectations so it didn't hurt as much? Like what was the process for you there? Yeah, I think I didn't expect to to obviously be coming to this event already qualified. Right. I think that was um, a really big plus for me and um, definitely really eased the nerves in so many ways. But I think I didn't expect to my to be in the place I am mentally, I feel like I'm a lot more at ease. And I think expectations is just a loaded kind of feeling mm. and question in so many ways as athletes, right? You know, we have so many goals and it's, um, it's like I said, it's going to be a long journey again, but in a way it's, it's not a journey, you know? I was talking to, um, you know, in this house, but not in this house right now, is uh, Travis Logie and his wife, Shauna, and we've been catching up on all sorts of things. And we were talking about expectation management for elite surfers. And we were mm. talking about, you know, Kelly had his film like Letting Go, which the entire idea was like, I'm not going to care. Therefore, I'm liberated to surf to my potential. And we talked about, you know, Dane Reynolds used to kind of go, I'm going to eat gas station food and ride kind of different boards so I don't overthink 
that I need to deliver to maybe everyone else's expectations right. about me. And Trav says something really interesting. He goes, that's totally correct that you do need to kind of like separate yourself from those expectations. But when you do it as a contrivance, when you're actually like pretending to do it, it doesn't work that well. And, and I thought that was so interesting because now it's become this thing where, okay, now people are actually intentionally trying to be like, oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like we're all having fun. And, and that's just not the case for competition really in anything. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, that's amazing. It's an incredible point. I think it's, it's interesting because I think I've preached or said that in, in my head, right. Or right. said it out loud that, you know, I need to stay in the moment. I need to let go. I need to be free. And, and, you know, how does that change where you actually be it instead of right. do it? And it's the being part where it changes everything, mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to talk about, you know? Well, and surfing's so unique too, when just in terms of, of how confident you can ever be, right? Because it happens in the ocean and it's like, I use these parallels where it's like, well, in other sports, you can be the biggest, strongest, fastest, most talented, and it's a static playing field. And you're like, I'm better than that person. I'm going to win. And you have like, people can have this element of swagger where you can do all the same exact things in surfing, but at the end of the day, the ocean's kind of in charge. So I think that lowers the ceiling on mm -hmm. everyone's confidence to a degree because For they're sure. like, I could easily be the best, but I could lose. For sure. No, the ocean, I think keeps us humble mm. and it keeps the sport so interesting. I, there's not really any sport like it. Right. I, I talked to my dad a little bit cause he's a, he's a fisherman. So it, it kind of is a sport where it's a little bit the same, right? You right. know, you could be the best. And, um, you know, I've said it before. He's like pretty much the Kelly Slater, I think, of fishing. <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, he talks about how, you know, you can prepare, you know, you can prepare, prepare mentally, you can prepare physically, but sometimes the fish is not going to eat your lure. Right. And that's how, that's how the game is. And mm -hmm. to stay grounded in that and to, to stay strong in that, that it's, you know, it's okay in a way, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to be in that state of like blaming the ocean or expecting the right. ocean to give you a wave. Like I remember, like I was, I think this year and last year I was kind of expecting, you know, the universe to like, I don't know, provide me a wave and where I needed to make that myself. Mm. I need, I needed to bring that luck myself and, um, dig deep in a different way. You know, in just hearing you talk about it and you talk about it so beautifully and articulately, which is the word. I can show you're talking to your dad about that, but I, I'm curious, do you work with a sports psychologist as well? Because it seems like that's been a trend, at least among the elite surfers and probably surfers at all levels over the last few years where, yep, you can have all the talent in the world. You can do all the body work that, that sort of has sort of seen a renaissance, maybe kind of post McFanning's injury, hamstring injury back in 05, whenever it was. But more and more surfers are working with sports psychologists to to really give them the, the weaponry up here when you're out in the ocean because it's such a chaotic field of play. I'm just curious if you've done much work with any of them or any. Yeah. Um, ironic enough, I met my sports psychologist on a Motu. Okay. And it was actually the year before I qualified for the championship tour. So it was a really stressful year. And um, he definitely changed my mind. Like, it's everything. Mental having a mental strength is, is everything in the sport. And I think we take it for granted because it's so much more powerful than we could even imagine. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's, he's from Australia, Mike Duff, and he's worked with Lane Beachley and a bunch of tennis players. But yeah, I think he, you know, I was, I had so many losses this year where 
he believed in me, um, you know, where I felt like no one, no one could. And he, he really, I think just helped me, I think, be in a state of just being grounded, but also know that it takes time. Mm. And like, sometimes you need to go through that and people's time of like losses of hardships, it, it can vary. And there's no like written playbook. That's so interesting. And I'm going to bring Travis back into the conversation too and betray his confidence because he was telling me something, but I'm just kidding. But he was (laughs) telling me, he goes, you know, my, my brothers were better surfers than I was Mm -hmm. at him. And he goes, but they were not programmed to lose ever Mm. in the sense. And so they wouldn't have survived in surfing because you lose so much, right? Like there's 50 odd men and women on tour at the end of an event, you know, 49 of them are pissed, right? For and sure. one or two are okay. And even they probably thought they got underscored, right? Yeah. But it's one of those things where you just have to be, you have to be able to lose to maintain because eventually things will come around. Yeah, 100%. No, I actually bringing up Mac, Mick Fanning, um, I remember going into Europe and he was so, um, he was so incredible to me because I reached out to him a couple of times and, you know, he's been through, you know, incredible highs and lows in his career. Um, and I think he stayed so grounded and, um, you know, find, finding the balance of who he was on land and in water. And I was right. so like blown away by that because like that's what everyone wants to get to right. of like having a sense of self on land, but also, um, you know, being an incredible competitor in the water and, um, he told me, I think going into Portugal and France, he was saying that, um, you know, all the losses are actually part of this unbreakable body armor. Mm. And sometimes you don't see those, those losses as that, but you're going to be like unbreakable in some sense. And not saying that you're, you're not going to, you know, lose again or have these, um, hard times in your life, but it's all part of it. And you sometimes don't see that. And that was like, it was amazing. Um, you know, his words and uh he really made a big difference for me i'm sure and that's it almost seems like a rarity in surfing that there are those figures that have kind of gone through the gauntlet and seem relatively well adjusted to the point where they can pass that on because you know for someone like him that kind of tenacity and mental fortitude allowed him to sustain a career and also to reinvent himself you know i mean i was there for a lot of it on tour, uh, working in media and communications and had, and had kind of a front row seat to it with him because there were elements of those seasons or, or, or elements of his career arc where people were trying to push him out, you mm-hmm. know, where they're like, nope, that's surfing from like, you know, three years ago, we're done. And that's a hard thing really for anyone to take. And that, that kind of mentality has really taken a lot of people down um, in the sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm past my prime, surfing's progressed and I'm not there anymore. And I think it's such an interesting thing that he's passed that on to you, right? Because it's this tenacity of losing doesn't mean that you're done. You know, it just means that you you're, you're going to continue on and do something different. So it's very cool. hundred percent. I think as an athlete, you know, you're kind of like in the limelight and people see, see you from the outside. Mm. Right. And they really have no idea what, um, you know, your (laughs) saying it again, journey is, (laughs) but um, your, your process and what, you know, you've gone through, you really have no idea what someone goes through. Right. And I think, um, you know, I've learned through this to have more compassion, I think, for people and to really see that, you know, there's there's so much growth within everyone, you know, even if you can't even see it, even Mm. if that person, you know, might be at the bottom, there's like, there's growth happening. And yeah, I guess I would say that it's just, you know, having more compassion, but knowing that, you know, everyone's story is different and we'll never know exactly what's going on. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I, 
it's a salient point, I think, inside and outside of surfing right now, right? Where it's, you can take the approach of like, it's all about me and every, I'm at war with everyone else. Or you can take the approach where of compassion, right? Where you say, I'm scared. Everyone's scared. I can see that in someone else. And therefore there's at least a minimal connection and maybe I can be a little kinder, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think that's, that's a big deal. What before tracking back to Watts, when you said, um, you know, life isn't a journey, if it's not a journey, in your opinion, what do you think? What do you think it is? If you evolve that perspective, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> um, I definitely like think that, you know, life and surfing is a journey still. But I feel like in the aspect of, like I mentioned, it's not really a destination that we're getting to. You know, we're thinking that we're getting to this big thing and that big thing is coming and that big thing is coming. And that's where we're living while we forgot to or we forget to sing and to dance and to surf in mm. our <laughs> opinion um, while the music was being played. Right. That makes sense. I, I, it's an interesting pivot, right? Because you, you're right where it's like if you treat life like a journey, you're focused on some port sort of destination. But the right. idea is like, well, no, you, you missed it. You were at the destination yeah. the whole time, but you're, exactly. you're trying to get there. Yeah. And it could be a hard destination in your life. Right. And mm. that's when you're trying to dance in the rain. <laughs> but it's um yeah I think having that strength to um take a step back and being like you know this is the position I'm in mm. and there's a reason for this um and it all goes back to just being in this moment mm. and it's harder said than done like of you course. mentioned right you could say it all you want but how can you really like believe it mm. it all comes with time and it comes with um yeah redefining yourself what's been the hardest destination for you over the last couple of years what what was the moment if you can pinpoint it hardest destination as far as like just where you were in your life and thinking i mean this is this is hard it's hard being here right now yeah i would say probably at the u.s open i felt like i, w- I hit rock bottom mm-hmm. i felt like i think bringing back expectation i think i was so I was so um, immersed in that feeling and emotion, which is is pretty toxic human human trait. Yeah. <laughs> um, I felt like I, you know, during COVID, I was really blessed, you know, to be on Nemotu right. and to have that time there. And I felt like I, I did a lot of work. Um, I felt like I found myself, whatever that meant, and um, I, I was um, really excited to like, you know, get get back on tour and get on my second year on tour. And I think I expected, you know, kind of for me to perform, you know, for results, for um, a bunch of just different things that I was expecting. But every result, I swear, like it was like the same thing. Like it was just a circle where I wasn't obviously relearning it at all. I wasn't learning the lesson of that. And yeah, that was that was hard. But I think when I was well, I felt like rock bottom. I um, I had to kind of have this different perspective and I kind of had a, like an outer body experience, I felt like. And my psychologist really helped me with that and be like, hey, like I need to look at this differently because right. obviously this, is, this isn't working. And I need I think one of my favorite quotes is like when you you don't expect anything, you almost receive everything. Mm. You know? Yeah. And so that probably set you on that trajectory in Europe. Right. Because the things pivoted for you in a major way, um, winning in France and then sealing, sealing the deal for you for 22. Yeah. And I I know that's 
you know, it's it's long. It's um it's going to be ups and downs from here on out. And um, it was a QS, and I know the CT is so much a different level, but you know, hopefully, I can carry on this momentum. It's interesting you bring that up because um, it's something that I'm fascinated with and talk about a lot. And I, I've told the story a few times, but like before I came to work here 16 years ago, it was just like a shit poster before there was posting, you know, where it's like you get around, you watch the webcast and you go like number 45 on tour is terrible, blah, 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 blah. You know, you just whatever, because the distance in terms of what you'd see on a webcast between you know the title contenders and like bottom of the rankings, you're like, it's so vast. And, you know, you got some idiocy going on when you're younger, but I remember being just jaw on the ground, looking at those surfers who I didn't think were much on the CT in real life and just thinking that is the best surfer I've ever seen in my life by like mm -hmm. a factor of a hundred. And we hear this a lot too, right? Where people are going like, I was a superstar in the QS, but the speed and the power and just the rhythm that CT surfers have is so much higher. Right. It's just another level. Is that yeah. something that, that you think rings true? Is that something that's rang true for you kind of sitting in both worlds? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a big contrast, mm. I would say. But there is so much talent on the QS that I think people really don't see. And right. I think that's what the Challenger series has really given light to mm. is um, it is kind of like the big stepping stone for those QS surfers because they have it within them. Right. I feel like the top Challenger series surfers have that you know ct surfing it's just it comes with time mm -hmm. i would have to say um and you can't rush time <laughs> and uh i think the more time that you have on the ct and kind of finding your place and um i think making a statement and and it, yeah it all goes back to finding your place on tour because you know you're not trying to be you're not trying to be someone else right you know how do you um be your truest version of yourself on the CT right. and be that unique, you know, character, that unique surfer. Um, and that's all we're trying to aspire to be. But I would say um, time. <laughs> you, you, your rookie year was 2019. Um, so just before the pandemic hit and things got chaotic. You had a great rookie season, you know, third in Bali, I think fifth at Bells, and you were turning a lot of heads. Do you think that being a rookie and going back to the expectations thing and being like, I'm just happy to be here was a bit liberating in how you were able to perform that season? Yeah, I would say so. I think um, I definitely lost myself after, I think maybe Margaret River a little bit because I was um, definitely comparing myself to others on tour. Mm. And um, that's not the headspace that you should be in. Is there someone in particular you compare yourself to or is it just a general kind of like, that I don't I don't do things like that person. I don't do that thing like that other person. I think just in general, mm. I was um, I'm very observant mm. and I'm very analytical, um, probably because I'm a Virgo. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I I think I definitely I'm very curious and I think I always um, you know want to learn from the best and I want to. My grandma would always say, "Steal like an artist," and I think that's mm. really you know important part of life is um you know stealing little good things from other people in some way and making it your own um but i wasn't really making it my own right and um that's hard because you can only do you mm. at the end of the day you can't replicate somebody else was there an element of of hero worship you so you're still so young and so accomplished but like growing up looking at surfers like 
Tyler Wright or Steph Gilmore or Carissa Moore, whoever, um, who've been in the limelight and then go having to put the singlet on against them. Does that, are you, is there any awareness where you say, geez, I don't know. Like I used to, I used to watch this person's segment or heat to get psyched to surf and now I got to beat him. I don't know if I can do that. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so many different approaches you can kind of have as a rookie, right? You can have that confidence of like, actually they're probably more scared than I am because right. it's, it costs them more if more they to lose, lose yeah. to a rookie or you could be in this in the space of like wow like mm-hmm. I don't really belong like I'm trying to find my place imposter syndrome yeah and um I would say I definitely leaned into that more right because I didn't um I didn't really know who I was mm. back then um and I was I mean, I was 19, but I felt like I was so young in so many ways. 19 is young. (laughs) It is young, but (laughs) I felt like, um, yeah, just I was like a late bloomer. And um, I think that, yeah, I I wasn't really ready, but it it, um, was definitely an experience that I I needed to have Mm. and I was grateful for. Of course. The the age thing's interesting because, you know, superstar athletes across the spectrum now, but certainly in surfing, now have to grow up and become adults in the limelight you know and and i'm not the only person that says this but like you know other sort of professional commentators like myself would say like i'm so glad that social media wasn't around when i was 19 Mm. like i'm so glad it wasn't around when i was 29 or what you know what i mean like for sure and there's so much growth that humans go through like their whole lives but specifically between like late teenage years and early 20 early 20s having to do that in the spotlight of even a webcast, let alone like media profiles and social media is it's, it's a huge thing. Is that something that you've intentionally tried to combat or not combat or just navigate? Or is you just kind of like, look, I am who I am. This is all I've ever known growing up in an information age. And, and that's how I'm, I'm, I'm going about my business. Yeah, uh, I think being in the limelight and social media and just this fast paced, fast paced life we're living in is really scary. Mm. And yeah, I think about those, you know, next generation, you know, athletes, um, you know, they're so young and I feel like, you know, have they, have they lived without Instagram? Like, I think that's what's so scary to me is that I guess I was born off the grid in in Costa Rica and I, I didn't even know what a a telephone was. Mm. Honestly, we had radios, (laughs) we had no electricity. Um, And I think coming from that really just gave me a different way of looking at life but also kind of harder to get into um, the social media nowadays, right? right? So how do I find that balance? Because it's part of like, it's part of your career. Part of the job. And yeah. yeah, part of the job now. Um, so I think I'm trying to find that that balance, right? Of like, you know, this isn't really real in some ways, right. but it's also, you know, part of my job. And I want to stay true to who I am too, yeah. you know? Um, but I think social media is, is a great thing, but it's also, um, yeah, definitely screws with our minds for sure. Right. You mentioned Costa Rica and I want to, I want to wind the clock all the way back in mm-hmm. a moment, but first we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors and we'll be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So you mentioned growing up off the grid, but for our listeners, can you be a bit more expansive? What does that mean? Where were you? What did mom and dad do? Where did you come from? Yeah. Uh, where did I come from? I literally came out of the jungle, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> no, my parents met in Hawaii and um, pretty much after their first date, my dad was like, my dream is to move to Costa Rica. So they saved up all their money and they drove from California and they stumbled um, upon this little, not even a town, like just, I would say jungle part of Costa Rica called Matapalo. And they lived there for 14 years and, and then I was born. And so that was such a big part of my life. It changed how I saw the world in so many ways. Right. Matapalo. So, and you, you grew up in Costa Rica. And what, what did mom and dad do down there? He's sort of on the fringe of society in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, I would say they're little hippies. No, no. <laughs> there is definitely hippies around You can, us. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, our house was completely open. So it, I couldn't even explain it. Like literally there was no doors, no windows. It was um, completely immersed in nature. And we lived on um, this perfect little bright point break. And my dad was a fisherman. Mm-hmm. So he would, um, his deckhand would pull up the boat and he'd get on the boat and and take people fishing. And then um, also my mom was a chef at an eco lodge in La Barrios, which was just up the hill. So I was born in the ocean and I would say I was born in the kitchen also. (laughs) That's incredible. So you, you never knew a life where you weren't surfing. Yeah, I, I guess I, yep, I wouldn't know. Born to it. And, and. How I'm so curious now. How old were you when you first left Montepaulo or the area? Like, what, what were some of those early experiences like? Did you go to I don't know Tamarindo, or did you go to San Jose, or did you leave the country and and go like, oh wow, like this is this is the world, and it's so different from my home. Yeah, uh, I think 
my my first real memory of like society or just like I don't know the United States. I I came to visit my grandma, and I had my first donut, and that was like massive. <laughs> <laughs> that um that began my sugar addiction. But um, how old are you when you first uh, donut visit grandma? Um, I think I was like. Maybe like seven. Okay. Are we say. talking like a maple bar or like a cinnamon? It was a chocolate donut. Oh, okay. So that's why probably I'm a chocoholic. <laughs> it all went downhill from there. <laughs> but yeah, so I remember having a chocolate donut and then also seeing a vacuum for the first time and that scared like the crap out of me. I was completely petrified because we lived so simply, you right, know, yeah. we were so like just with nature and like every day was an adventure. Uh, I lived there for nine years of my life. Right. And what happened after nine years? My my grandparents were, were getting sick. And so we came to Hawaii and um, decided to just look out for them right. and um, think get a better education. And uh, yeah, and that's kind of how my competitive surfing kind of, I guess, went. Right. Was it a, ha, had you done a lot, I guess, had you traveled outside of visiting your grandma and eating donuts for the first time much more than that? Or was like moving to Hawaii like a pretty big shock to the system? I definitely, we traveled, I would say a little bit. Mm. So I, I, it wasn't like that big of a shock. Right, yeah. I think that I kind of knew I had like a bigger, my bubble was bigger right. for sure. But, um, I definitely remember like going to actual school because I, I was in a class with only like four students in mm. Costa Rica and my class was like 25 and I was, mistaking my eyes for my ease right. and <laughs> I think I was in second grade I was in second grade when I first got back to the states and yeah it was definitely like a big change for me um but luckily you know I, I had a lot of family in Hawaii and uh made some really good friends and I had the ocean always right, yeah. so that was really important gravitating towards competitive surfing is that something that you ever thought about in Costa Rica or something that didn't really come to you until you came to Hawaii yeah actually there was this one cd because back when there was dvd players oh, yeah, yeah. that was like the only technology I kind of had down there um there was this one movie called seven girls mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever watched it oh, yeah, yeah. but um one of my favorite movies and there was a part where Carissa was in it and I think she was about seven Right. And I remember just watching that part over and over again. And it was kind of an older film mm -hmm. back then when I was watching it. And I was like, can I just watch Carissa again? Like, I need to watch Carissa again. And then we ended up moving to Hawaii and I saw Carissa more everywhere. Right. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, that can't be the same Carissa. <laughs> and she was like, you know, already a, a world champion. Sure. And I was like, I was pretty mind blown. And I, I guess I didn't really know competitive surfing back then I was still pretty like sheltered I would say in a way but I think that definitely got the ball, ball, a ball rolling right I mean growing up where you grew up too and and probably having the freedom to develop your own surfing at a pretty rapid pace comparatively how would you assess your surfing ability for your age when you came to Hawaii did you feel like you were on par with some of the other surfers that you competed against did you feel like you were maybe better than them or did you did you feel like oh my god like whatever i was doing is not what they're doing and now i have to work that out it was definitely a very humbling experience okay. i was below average i would say i loved the ocean um i could go straight pretty well mm -hmm. um and i could kind of teach i guess my 
my parents ran a surf school in Costa Rica, so I kind of would just think that I was teaching them right, or yeah. whatever. But actually, my first contest was um, the Menehune, which was at Haliva. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to actually go back a little bit because the reason I got into competing was because of my uncle Greg, mm. um, Greg Nakamura, and um, incredible surfer. He's done actually a couple contests and at sunset he's placed like third at the HIC pro. So he was my biggest role model back Mm -hmm. then. And I went into his like trophy room and of course being a little kid, I can't lie. I wanted some trophies. I think that's what kickstarted it. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So my first contest was the Menehune, one of my first contests. And, um, I remember actually Mahina Maeda, Mm -hmm. Dax McGill and a couple of other Hawaiian girls that was in my first heat and they all had sponsors, all had really short boards and I had my dad's thick wooden fish (laughs) and I was surfing the inside and they were, I just clearly remember like they were doing cutbacks and off the tops on the outside and I was just mind blown. Right. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) The the sticker thing, I'm going to flash forward, but I definitely want to come back to this, but I've noticed there's a psychology associated with it, or at mm. least one that I'm I'm projecting mm. is there because even elite level surfers, men and women, if they're transitioning sponsors or losing sponsors and the sticker comes off the board, it does feel like there's a little bit of a body language that comes with it. And it's so fascinating because I think what you're getting, it's similar where it's like when you're young, it's so important. You're like, I need to have whatever sticker on the nose of my board because that validates my talent. Yeah. And then you could do that for 15, 20, 30, however long. Right. And then when it comes off, you go, oh, man, like, what is that? I'm no good anymore. And, And I'm just curious to get your read on that because you're obviously in it and you're obviously have great sponsors right now and, and very worthy of them. But before and after, have you, have you noticed that for surfers on tour where you go like, man, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy thing and it shouldn't mean anything. Like the board still works the same. The body still works the same, but it, it kind of does. For sure. No, I feel like you definitely feel bare, kind of a little bit naked without it in some ways. Right. Um, I actually remember my first sponsor that I had, I was like beyond excited. <laughs> like, you know, when you put your first your first sticker on it. It's just I wouldn't like, know, but you could tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're sponsored by by Nettie's. It's right. It's right. <laughs> uh, it was pro light, and uh, that definitely like just gave me that little bit of like confidence, that underlining confidence that you someone know, believes in you. Yeah, right? you're seen and you're heard, and um, so that was definitely a big one. But yeah, it's it's a it's definitely a strange one for sure. Because for me, when I actually look at someone that's like super talented and they don't have a sponsor, they have a bear board. I actually am kind of like, I respect them so much more. Mm. Like it's pretty amazing when they kind of have, you know, nothing to prove or nothing to show. Like my mom, she told me this amazing story of like when she was surfing in Costa Rica and these guys piled out and they were just like um, on these fun shapes and they had no idea who they were. And cause it was so uncrowded back then. So you would like know the person and, um, they were super kind and like genuine and they would give all the waves to, you know, my dad and mom. And they're like, who are these guys? And finally they would get a small one and they would just like, like rip it up. Like it was insane. Hmm. And that was, that spoke volumes, I think to me and her, because like they didn't have to prove anything. Right. And that's like the greatest like talent and superpower ever when you just are kind and genuine and you don't have to show people 
you know, who you are sometimes, you know, or like how good you are because you're just, you know, you're fine. It makes sense, right? Because it, and it, it probably tracks with age as well, right? Where everyone, whether you surf or not, you you grow up and you're insecure, most people, right? And mm-hmm. having someone validate whatever you're doing um, through a sticker or a sponsorship yeah. is feels good. But as you pointed out, you then kind of are doing the thing you're good at for someone else instead of yourself. For sure. And and not to um, I don't I don't actually I talk to him too much. I don't really know him, but like someone like a Jake Marshall, who's just qualified that doesn't have sponsors, yeah. but had them and was sort of one of the the guys that was sort of anointed in the mid to late oddies. It feels like he is now surfing for himself and he's doing so, so well. And I, it's, it's maybe that's a bad example, but maybe it's kind of right on the nose in the sense of like, this is someone who's kind of gone through the ringer of who am I and what am I actually doing? And then now seeing results from it. For sure. No, that's um, that's an amazing example. I think um, I think I struggled through that, too, because like I wasn't really surfing for myself mm. in the beginning of the year. And I think when I came to the point of like, you know, I'm doing this for me mm. and, you know, I'm doing this for others, of course. But um, the only person that that always will have your back and always will be there for the rest of your life is yourself. Mm. And who is who is going to believe in yourself? You know, when sometimes you think no one will and it has to come from you. Mm. And when it comes from you, that's when I think the magic happens. Like, for example, Jake Marshall. It's like it's really inspiring to see, you know, people find that because you know how hard, you know, they worked and how hard um, must have been for them. And sometimes, you know, in their life, it's a little bit like self-fulfilling and ironic, too. Right. Because when you're having the pressure of surfing for someone else, like a sponsor, as you pointed out, like you don't always surf your best, which Mm. the sponsor doesn't like, you know? And then when you actually are surfing for yourself, you probably become that much more appealing to a sponsor. Even if you're sponsored the whole time, you've just kind of figured the math out where you go like, I'm going to do my best, which is the best for you, sponsor X, when I surf for myself. Right, exactly. And it's also like the balance of like, um, you know, finding your drive, right? Right. And sometimes it's like, for example, um, you know, the Olympics, I actually... I wasn't really surfing for myself in some ways because I actually got like so much like love and support from, you know, Costa Rica and this country that it kind of like my, the pressure was a little bit off and I was something for, I was surfing for something bigger. So it's like you either are surfing for like something bigger Mm. or you're surfing, I think for yourself and like finding that, um, that balance and how that integrates. Did you like that? Did you like, having to surf for a country um in that in that experience yeah i guess you could say that's almost like it sounds like it'd be more pressure mm. but they were like so understanding and like i think no matter what like you were going to have an impact mm. and they were like embracing the sport and um really embracing me right. and that was like really really special it must there might be a, a little bit of a difference um I'm thinking about it now uh, kind of in real time, but I hear all the time from surfers, whether it's, you know, Jeremy in France or Michelle in Tahiti or, you know, even Steph on the Gold Coast mm-hmm. where it is, it's nice to surf your home break or it's nice to surf with the local support. But the, again, the expectation and every time you're getting a coffee and then walking down the street, it's like, everyone's like, you need to do well, you need to do well. And, right. you know, someone like Jeremy didn't do well at Hasegor until the other year where he won basically mm. and and he's on the record as being like yeah it's a lot like everyone on this continent 
wants me to win this event compared to the Olympics, which it's like, it's in Japan. You've got all this great support from home, but it's not in your face. You know, it's sort of, it's remote momentum in a way. Yeah. I think that was, that was definitely, yeah, it's, it's different. It's, it's interesting. Cause I feel like if it was like, if you had a, if you had, if we had an event at your home break in Costa Rica and the entire country turned up, it would probably feel a little bit different, right. Than competing in Japan. Yeah. I would say that would definitely be stressful <laughs> and a lot, but cause I think it's that you want to make them proud. Of course. You want to make them proud. And, uh, I wanted to make them proud in the Olympics, but it was kind of like this, it was so unknown for yeah. us to be there too. So to have like, they kind of were like, it was like a different experience for them too. Right. So they had no idea what they were necessarily watching in a way. Um, and yeah, I guess it was, it was different because no matter what, it was like, it was an amazing time, such a historic time for the sport, mm. historic time for the country. Um, and in general, like, especially through, you know, that year that we went through yeah. and the last couple of years that we've gone through, it's like, it's an incredible time to like come together. Yeah. Um, and that's what the Olympics showed me. Right. Then, now that we're talking about it, the best example that I ever saw of this was uh, Sofia Milanovic, former world champ, who was incredible, incredible surfer. And we started having CT events in Peru. And the first event mm -hmm. we had, I want to say it was 2008 in Moncora, this little left-hand point. And the amount of people that were there basically expecting her to win the event was radical. Wow. And, and she was just, you could tell she's just like, wow, like it's, I'm super psyched that everyone's behind me, but this is a lot. Right. It's a lot. It's a lot. How big was the, uh, just the Costa Rica Olympic team, um, outside of surfing that you were a part of, and did you have a lot of interaction with them at, at the games? Yeah. So Costa Rica is probably one of the smallest countries that participates in Olympics. Mm -hmm. So we had, I think about 10 athletes and I got to, which was special because I got to really know each and every one of them. And it was the biggest time of their career. Mm -hmm. And they honestly like couldn't believe that they were there right. and their drive and their motivation, you know, to make their country proud, to make their family proud was so like, you could see it, you know, in their eyes and in their hearts. And Costa Rica is like, it's such a small country, but probably like the biggest hearted country, mm -hmm. if that's even a word, ever, right. I would say. And What were some of the other events that the other Costa Ricans were competing in? There was um, a couple swimmers mm -hmm. and um, a judo player, a couple judo players, as well as a gymnast, okay. which is really cool, and um, a biker. So it was a lot of different sports, which was, which was pretty awesome to have that variety. But surfing was such a big one, I think, for Costa Rica because I think it was huge for that country to embrace the sport. Of course. I think soccer and, and football, well, we call it soccer, but football back then, <laughs> back there, mm -hmm. is is such a big part of like their life. Right. Where I think surfing was more like a lifestyle sport. And mm -hmm. for that to go to the Olympics and um, to be validated that it is a sport and that anyone can do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Costa Rica that like benefits from that, like right. it goes hand in hand, like the way that they live and the way that, you know, they're in the ocean and how they protect the land and, you know, the pura vida lifestyle, it's, um, it goes hand in hand. Yeah. And so I think it was really special for me and Leilani because it, um, you know, it puts surfing in the limelight for Costa Rica right. and it, it brought a lot of, um, 
you know, little girls into the ocean. And that was like, that was like the best part. Do you guys, um, the Costa Rica Olympic team, do you guys like have your own WhatsApp thread? Do you still talk? What goes on? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I definitely keep in touch with, um, you know, one of the swimmers. We became really good friends. But yeah, we definitely are, are, are pretty close and definitely just really, really good, good vibes. And their energy is unlike any, any other type of people. Like they're incredible. Yeah. Going back to your development. So nine years old, you moved to the to Oahu. Is it the North Shore or? No. So I lived on the east side of Oahu, okay. which is there's no waves there. And uh, very, I think, you know, sheltered in, in a different way, too, which mm. I kind of loved. Yeah. You know, I was a, away from the South Shore and away from the North Shore. I had my own little bubble. Right. And in your teenage years, you start spending summers in Fiji. Is that Right. Is that and for dad, dad's fishing, mom's cooking, maybe still. What, what was the what was what were your sort of early experiences in Fiji? Yeah, I dad started working on Nemotu as a fisherman. And so I remember when we first got invited with him over there, I just it was mind blowing. Right. Like that was I mean, I've been to some of the most beautiful places in the world, you know, like Costa Rica. But Fiji was so like the clarity of the water and and the people it definitely reminded me of Costa Rica for sure (laughs) but yeah so I I started going there probably once a year with dad and mom was in the kitchen and I was lucky enough to just be surfing (laughs) and my best friend actually got to come too a bunch of times which I was like this is not real life but I was really lucky Uh, and so that's kind of how it I think came out to be and then dad got the position as um as the manager and then we moved from Hawaii and it kind of transitioned transitioned into us being houseless nomads. <laughs> right. But houseless nomads across Costa Rica, Hawaii, and Fiji. I might be missing some, but those seem like three <laughs> three if you want to become a world class surfer very quickly, those seem like three good places, right? Yes, Joe. I'm beyond blessed. It yeah, it's it's kind of crazy to say out loud. Um, but mostly I I kind of just live out of my suitcase and mm. sometimes it's it's hard like uh, yeah. I sometimes want my own bed and mm. I want my own kitchen but um I think the memories and the experiences and this unconventional life that my family and I are living is um yeah all we want to do and we're grateful to be to be doing it. I was going to say it, when you say I want my own bed and I want my own kitchen <laughs> Do those places actually exist? Like, is there a singular location where you're like, that's my own bed and my own kitchen? Or do you have one in mind? And if you, if you don't, where would, where would it be for you? If you, had, <laughs> if you had to create, you could still be a nomad. That's totally fine. But if you had to create a home base of operations, where do you think that would be for you? Yeah, actually, I was really thinking about Australia. Mm. And I got my residency in the beginning of COVID. Mm which is probably the worst time to get your right. residency, but I was really lucky too. And so I think that that would be like the perfect home base, I would say. It's really close to Fiji mm-hmm. and um, I have a lot of good friends there. So I don't know, one day. What maybe part, what part of Oz, if I may ask? Uh, I'm still kind of looking, but maybe somewhere on the Gold Coast. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure yet. Interesting. Going back to your development into a world-class competitive surfer, world one of the world's best surfers, no question. Uh, you, you talked about the observable talent gap when you first started competing, and you've obviously narrowed and, and inverted that gap for a lot of those surfers that you named. Did you feel yourself developing into a world-class surfer 
at like a rapid pace? Could you noticeably see like, oh my God, like now I'm doing this and now I'm doing that. And now I'm beating that person and now I can do this person thing because it, it's, it must have happened in such a relatively tight window compared mm. to everybody else. Yeah, it's interesting because I look at all the next generation surfers now mm. and, you know, they're so young and there's actually a huge amount of them, right. which is pretty amazing. The The person that I, I qualified with was, you know, Macy Callahan. Mm. And it was kind of a weird gap in in the CT on how we qualified because we were on the QS with, um, you know, a bunch of kind of the QS veterans. And so we were, I would say, almost kind of like the guinea pigs because we were that, I guess, not really stepping stone, but we're in that weird transition. Wasn't a big generation where it's like six people are on tour. Now you were in that in between, especially when you talk about that younger group that's so vast. It's like you were in, you're in that in between space. Yeah. It was, it was strange because I, when we qualified, like, you know, the Chris's, the Steph's, like they were there to stay, like, Mm. and they weren't going to retire and they're still not going to retire because they're absolutely amazing. But it was it wasn't like we were like coming and like I don't know this new wave was coming. Right, yeah. So we were like getting on and we're like, oh my gosh, like you know what do we, what do we kind of do? We were very, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 definitely it's interesting to see like how those waves kind of right. of of generation and people happen. Um, but I think getting on the CT, it was it was definitely like a lot of like highs and lows. Like I remember like my junior career. You know, my I think biggest rival and, um, you know, amazing, amazing surfer, Caroline Marks. Mm. You know, we had so many, um, you know, battles together at, you know, NSSA Nationals, U.S. Champs, and she got on relatively early. Right. And um, so, yeah, I think that pivot to then going on the QS and then I had a couple years where I didn't have any good results was like mm. different, a different momentum than I was kind of like expecting (laughs) but yeah i would say it's yeah it's interesting to see how like everything works it's funny too because we touched on that before where the established elite class have all these tools but then every year there's new qualifiers coming on and sometimes they come on in waves and sometimes there's sort Mm. of the the intermission group that comes on but anytime someone comes on because surfing's constantly progressing they often come on with with weapons of their own, right? Whether mm. it's like, uh, they're really adept at fin free maneuvers or, you know, this group can ride barrels like in a, in a new way. For sure. What I'm going to ask you to, to be complimentary of yourself for a second, but like what tools mm. in terms of your own surfing, did you feel like you have, or that you have that are really threatening to the establishment? Is it flow? Is it a backhand? Is it power? It could be all these things, but are there certain things about your surfing that you think, give you an advantage like amongst the world's best mm. uh it's definitely hard to talk about yourself uh, yeah, isn't yeah. It? I, I, no, I, <laughs> I gave you some runway so this is my fault so you can say whatever you want uh, i'm blaming on you yeah, Dave. That's right, yeah. um yeah i think thinking about when i was like 16 my first wild card was at honolulu bay because i was thinking about like you know what was i doing at 16 right, right a yeah. bunch of the girls now in the next generation are 16 years old which is absolutely incredible mm. and i think one thing that helped me, I think, transition was, I would say, just like my power surfing. I think I never really had like a lot of stuff going on in the air or anything at all. I stayed on the wave. <laughs> but um, I think power surfing, um, I definitely am, you know, trying to stick to my strengths in that way. Mm. 
And I think it's it's amazing because I think that will never grow old, right. which I'm really lucky. It won't. And I mean, I think that's actually it's great that you have that perspective as well, because that's another thing that I've noticed just doing this as long as I have is that there there is there are different types of world class surfing that are always going to be world class surfing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes trends move in a direction and the judging moves in a direction and people can get really nervous. I remember being in a conver in and around a conversation with Andy um, mm -hmm. when he came back in 2010. And it was at a time when there's a lot of error verses that were getting scored and, you know, people are doing rodeo flips. And I remember being knocked on my ass, basically listening to Andy think that he was no longer a world class surfer wow. because of that, you know, because he's like, I I'm not doing rodeo flips or anything mm -hmm. like that. And it's like, you don't have to like if you surf at 80 percent of what you can do, it's still better than everyone else in the world, you know, but it. And I've talked to a few people about this, especially surfers that have surfed at that level. And it's like, it's a real thing. Like you can, you can get wrapped up in whatever direction surfing's heading and forget that you are a world-class surfer and that you have these kind of weapons that you can tap into. Mm. Wow, Dave, I really needed to hear that. There you go. Thank so you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's, it all comes down to like, I think really leaning into your strengths mm. and when you like forget that and are trying to like get on this other train of like what you can't mm. do, especially like going into a contest, it, um, it definitely backfires. Right. And, uh, I think it's important to progress and to obviously new, like go into the generate next like phase of like, you know, getting, getting in the air, progressive, um, maneuvers, but, um, it all comes down to like your strengths, especially mm. in competition. And hopefully that lasts a long time in your generation. I think that's right too. And and I think that, you know, you, I, I'm that next crop of women that are coming up that are, you know, 15, 16 at the moment and have all these weapons that are really interesting. I think a lot of that does get leveled out when they end up hitting the CT. And we see this on the men's side too. We see a ton of hype around a new mm. talent and someone that can do new things, but then you get amongst the world's best surfers and and the world's best surfing across these dimensions and you see there's some 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 people hit some speed bumps where you're like that person's going to win the world title their rookie season it's like no one's doing that you know like it is they're going to get there and the things they need to work on are become apparent very quickly mm. yeah that was i mean at least for me getting on the C ct it was it was so much more different than I expected, mm. but also, you know, what I expected also too. But I think going through that and like, you know, maybe you have that hype, right? Getting in, getting onto the CT mm. and like being like humble <laughs> in a sense of like, whoa, like I need to kind of take a step back. And, um, I think, yeah, stay grounded. It's, it's different for everyone. I mm. couldn't really tell. I mean, I don't think I was, I definitely got on like really just, you know, grateful to get on. Right. I think I had more of like moment, my moment, momentum going more in my junior career, right. I would say. So it was like a different transition for me. I, would say. I was going to ask, do you feel like you were hyped or overhyped when you were coming onto the tour? It's a hard thing to answer, I guess, but I'm, I'm just more curious, especially maybe you can answer in terms of relativity of like, well, no, not compared to like a Jordy or someone, but like, yeah, there was hype or maybe there, maybe you felt like you were under hype. Maybe you just sort of flew under the radar when you qualified. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Cause I think, you know, you, your junior career, at least for 
the U.S., you mm-hmm. definitely can get a lot of hype, like, you know, winning, you know, the open women's or like the under 18s. It's like it's very apparent, especially for the U.S. Right? The industry is there. The media is there. It's everything right? yeah, yeah. there. Uh, I think sometimes being from Hawaii, you kind of are like out of that mm-hmm. in some sense. Um, and then also you look at different different countries and you don't you don't hear of anyone. Right. right. Until maybe they get on the CT. And then there's just this really weird dip when you get on the QS because it's kind of undercover. Right. And so you kind of go, unless you qualify right that year, you kind of go undercover. Uh, people call it I the wilderness, say. you know, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're out there. I know the jungle really yeah, yeah. well. <laughs> you're like, this is my comfort zone. This yeah. is like, no, it's not my comfort zone. I don't want to be there. <laughs> uh, but then talking about the Challenger series, it's kind of like, brought that like more to light about these mm. next generation surfers or like you know people that have kind of been in the jungle or wilderness sure. for a long time like it's like apparent like they have talent like and so yeah I think I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure how hyped I was but I think I definitely was stuck in the jungle for a little bit for mm. sure it's interesting because I uh, have I've I think the last person I really talked to about this was Kolohe and and mm. he was the example I always use because 2011, we did the mid-year rotation. It was last year we did it. And that was when Gabriel got on the mid-year and he ended up winning two out of his first five events. <laughs> it's like sort of a non-rookie. Wow. Um, but John got on as well. And then Kolohe started in 2012, like for the full season. And I used Kolohe and John as sort of compare and contrast because as insane as this sounds now, and even when he was younger, because John's always been in the limelight, he actually kind of snuck onto the tour at that mid-year point. And the collective wisdom of everyone was like, well, I don't know. We'll see how he goes. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, hopefully he survives to pipe because that, no one had really kind of rated him as a world-class aerialist or a world-class like anything else. So when he started performing, I think his first event win was in Rio. And everyone goes, oh, like doing huge backhand rotations against right. Joel Parkinson. Everyone, went, oh, cool. He can do things that's like not pipe kind of thing, which mm. is an insane thing to say now. But yeah, he kind of benefited because he also broke his back that year. So he was a little bit off the radar. Mm. He kind of benefited from not having this manic hype mm. around him mm-hmm. when he qualified because everyone's like, well, we hope he stays on tour. Right. Again, insane to say that in hindsight. But compared to someone like Kolohe, who through no fault of his own, like the surfing industrial complex had like all the videos they were putting out and all the sponsorships and all the media coverage was like, this is our 10 year world champion starting right now. Mm. And I was talking to him about it and I said, I remember you making the quarterfinals in France your rookie year and people were like, failure. That's Mm. such a good result for a rookie, but it's like, because the bar was so unfairly high that you just had to deal with that. And And he was pretty candid. He's like, I've had to deal with that my whole career. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's an amazing example. I think, you know, everyone's how they peak or when they peak mm-hmm. is so different. Yeah. Um, and I think that's when you kind of have to look at it with like, you know, more compassion. Of course, like the hype's going to be there because that's the world we live in sure. with like social media and, and everything. But I think you kind of get kind of the end of bow sticks in almost every situation. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you right. know, yeah. like. Like, for example, John Jen, his belief from his self, he had a, all the belief had to come from himself, sure. you know, and that's yeah. pretty amazing. And then, you know, um, you know, Kolohe on his end for him to like perform when the bar is that high, like that's crazy too. Right. So it's, 
I think it all just balances out. It's like it's an interesting question to like to really think about. I think you can dive into that really deep. <laughs> I, I try to every episode. <laughs> when when did you start your relationship with your girl? So actually, bringing up the Menahuni again, I remember one of my friends. She, I guess, every year Rip Curl sponsored a new girl, mm. and um, she got sponsored that year. And I remember being like so jealous like that was like my dream sponsor and i was still going straight so i was like by no means gonna get sponsored by rip girl but but were I mean, you like i'm pretty good at it like going straight i can do that really well. <laughs> I, mean, I, I can throw me a sticker yeah a yeah i can definitely rock a bikini going straight <laughs> okay, um great. but no so every year i like i um you know wished i like got sponsored um but never did like i was by no means like needing or like in that position to get sponsored yeah, yeah. but that was always my dream sponsor and then um I was on Roxy for a couple of years during um my junior career and then I think the transition went from USA champs to NSSA nationals where um I got on rip curl when I was 13. Right right that's a long relationship. It is. And the company is um company has changed a lot it's changed a lot but at the same time um and i say this as if i worked there i did work at the retail shop back when i was a kid but um and i think they always try to claim you they're like oh yeah you worked at the retail shop can you let us know what's happening at the wsl Um, (laughs) but no everyone over there as long as i've worked at this organization they do a very good job of staying true to their own identity whether it's investing in bells or backing their talent and or committing to making the world's best wetsuits or whatever it is you know they they do these things and they kind of, I, I really feel like it's helped them navigate a lot of things, whether it's been the global financial crisis or COVID or anything else. And yeah. it must be great to work at a place like that. And I'm sure that you probably started when Brooke Ferris was running the women's team um, in, in, or at least part of it. And now she's CEO of the entire company. I know it's, it's a huge thing for the for just I think the sport and um for the industry and for rip curl um it's beyond incredible I remember my first trip when I was 13 I think it was after I got on rip curl and SSA nationals I I got to go to Mexico with Tyler Ray Nikki Van Dyke Paulina Doe and I got to surf with them and that was like one of the craziest experiences for me like they were absolutely getting barreled and doing like airs and turns and uh, I was mind blown mm. and so and Brooke went on that trip too right and so she she and I got to have a, an amazing relationship from then on and um for her to like you know go through all her different jobs in the company to now be like at the top is like is pretty pretty special because she has this like relationship with all the athletes yeah and I think she and Rip Curl really you know care about you know surfing um and their whole like core message, mm-hmm. right? Of like, you know, keeping that true and, you know, being in the ocean and right. like unity in that way. So I've been, I've been really lucky. Yeah. I mean, she worked, I worked with Brooke when she was our tour manager. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she's one of those people who, as you kind of pointed out, she's worn all these hats mm-hmm. and she's in a way like understood all these different parts of the sport. And it's great to see someone like her leading such a big company because she understands athletes and she understands events and she understands product and surfing. And it's not, not to kind of compare and contrast with other companies, but it feels like she's always going to know that right. As she's leading the company where it's like, she's going to understand you or the next you, you know, in a way, um, exactly. which is great. 
Yeah, no, um, Brooke is incredible and I, I congratulate her in so many ways. And um, yeah, I'm lucky. I'm really looking forward to the future. I think working together more with her and yeah, she was such a, I think, blessing and in my life, especially this year, because um, she was definitely, you know, one who really believed in me throughout mm-hmm. this whole process, you know, especially when I didn't believe in myself and to have like that backing. Um, you know, from Rip Curl in that way was was really special. And even the community they create too, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, being able to tap into someone like a McFanning, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like he's a teammate and I, I can get him on the phone and, and just pick his brain on stuff is yeah. invaluable, really. Definitely. It's a really, um, really great, unique team that we have, um, you know, going from the Murrow to, right. you know, McFanning and, you know, Tyler Wright. Um, they're all incredible athletes. And yeah, to have... To have that relationship with them is, um, yeah, it's really special. Got a couple more topics. Um, <laughs> we also have some listener questions, um, but we're going to take one more quick break to get a word in from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. So bringing it back to the present, one of your many nomadic base camps, Hawaii, you've been here for a little bit, and, and this episode's going to drop after Haleiwa, so you've just won another Challenger Series event. Congratulations. <laughs> um, but... Talk to us a little bit about that. So so you get to spend a good portion of your year based out of Hawaii, family here, uh, board builders here. It, it, it's an important part of who you are. Yeah, I'm honestly really blessed that I think that that was like kind of like a big, I guess, transition for me and um, place that I grew up and like found my roots. I think it's such a, as we all know as surfers, such a huge part of you know, surfing and finding your feet on the North Shore. And there's so many shapers and incredible surfers and locals. Um, it's such a historic place. Right. But yeah, I definitely find found, find a lot of like just good energy here. And um, I think it's really special that it's kick, kicking off the season here. Yeah. And how long have you been working with your shaper for? I've been working with TNC um, and I was working, still working a little bit with um, Makani Shapes. Mm-hmm. He shaped my first custom surfboard when I was nine years old. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've had like this the re- amazing relationship with them. Um, yeah, like over, I guess, a decade now. Right. And Glenn Pang has been amazing. I think he's been a really great mentor about just learning about my equipment. Mm. I think that's something that surfers take for granted. And I, by no means, know that much about surfboards. <laughs> I'm like finding my way. But um, he's incredible. He's worked on surfboards, you know, for 50 years. Right. And TNC has, I mean, they're absolutely legendary. Totally. Um, incredible company as well. And so to just have that like foundation and to have that family, like especially I'm able to like leave my surfboards at the factory (laughs) (laughs) while I travel around the world. So um, it's definitely a sense of home and um, they're incredible. You know, like I I want you to comment on this because I think a presumption or or maybe an unfair Mm -hmm. assumption of Hawaiian shapers is that they build unparalleled boards for Hawaiian conditions, but Hawaii is so unique that sometimes those shapes don't travel well, but you're someone who travels a ton and, and obviously surfs all kinds of conditions all over the world. It doesn't seem like it slowed you down at all. Yeah. I think that's, at least for me, I think it's a little bit of a stereotype. Right. Um, I think they have definitely evolved and like, because they have traveled as well, mm. um, that they, they've kind of like, you know, stole like an artist, like I mentioned, mm. and they've really evolved 
Um, I feel like, you know, Makani and Glenn, their boards um, have been amazing for me, especially like in smaller conditions, like going back to the Olympics, like I got a couple of like high tech epoxies Mm -hmm. and they worked incredible. And it was like, it was really interesting for me because I never, I think like working with them, I never thought about it in that way of like, oh, they're, they've only like shaped for, you know, Hawaiian waters. Like I never like went into that in that headspace, you know, where I feel like some people maybe would, I just always worked with them and they've evolved with me. And Mm. that's been like amazing to have that relationship because they know how much I travel and they know how much they have to like, you know, change with me as well. Right. And like, you know, Billy Kemper as well. And so it's a bunch of different aspects and they've done an incredible job. I love asking this question of um, elite surfers like yourself, but are you the kind of surfer who loves one shape, you know, Ferrari thruster, regardless of the conditions, like no epoxies, no quads, no weird tails, you, but you're just like, I constantly have to sharpen this blade or do you like to experiment? Yeah, I think finding, you know, boards and, and trying new boards, especially like, you know, being, you know, on tour and like constantly traveling, it's hard to like put in the the time to try new equipment like it's a scary kind of thing like and it's it's also scary in the sense of like this can actually take me to the next level but like also can maybe like step me back yeah you know if i get like too complicated like um you know bringing up maybe andy like he always like had the same fins in his like glass in in his boards right because he just didn't want to like deal with that um so for right now i've been like very um loyal to the cmg that's like my favorite board at the moment i wrote it in france and in europe and i've been writing it out here but i think this winter i especially want to like definitely try new equipment right it's interesting talking to surfers like yourself just the elimination of extra thinking you know where Mm -hmm. it's like i've met so many board builder managers and stuff where they're like oh like Surfer X has got a dozen boards in their room. I'm only bringing two down to the event site because I don't want them thinking about the other 10 that they're like, do I take this one out? Do I take that one out? And it's like the simplification of like, I have this board. If it breaks, I got a backup board. I'm not asking what the volume is. And I I know shapers that intentionally don't put dimensions on their boards Mm. because they're like, I don't want the surfer thinking about it. Yeah, for sure. I definitely overanalyze too. And like, Micro has helped me (laughs) in that way of like, you know, you pick your three boards and you know which ones work. And honestly, like if you jump on any equipment and, you know, you believe in yourself and you do your solid surfing, you're going to make it happen. I think the our whole like, I think thinking about, you know, you know, this board's going to do better than that board is like sometimes can really hinder us Mm. Um, where it actually is really simple. You know, I think just breaking it down on like. It's easy to say, but just like, you know, like I said, micro picking out those three boards. And then I think knowing that your surfing is always going to be within you mm. and, um, you know, bringing that out. But uh, I definitely get in in my head for sure when it comes to boards. <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned, we are recording this before you win the Holly of a Challenger event. <laughs> you're drink, but you're it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. We'll cut it out of the <laughs> But, but I, I'm curious because we're here in Hawaii, you've qualified for 2022. How much of your focus as of today is focused on finishing well at Haleiwa versus preparing for 22 CT start at Pipeline? 
I think it's it's a little of both, right? Mm. I want to definitely get as much time in the jersey as possible, especially like with the stacked field. You know, Chris is competing here, right. Caroline, Lakey, and I think just feeling you know the Hawaiian water and and the power here, like it's it's very different to anywhere else. Like um, especially you know coming from Europe too, which is also powerful. But um, there's definitely a different like energy that you need to tune into here. And it's super important, at least for me, to kind of like, you know, make myself home here and really, really put in time. Mm. So I definitely want to get some heats out at Haleiwa and definitely feel the power. And then um, I think in between, try to get out at Pipeline as much as I can. And um, I got a helmet. So I think just, yeah, just slowly but surely just not rushing things, right? You know, it's all about sustainability, Mm -hmm. Um, but definitely putting in the time. What's been your experience out at Pipe so far? I think a lot of ups and downs. I would say like, I definitely haven't surfed it when it's super, super big. Mm -hmm. I remember one year I definitely sat on the channel and just watched it, which is, I know, an experience and something I'm definitely gonna do this year of just watching it. I think watching it is way more valuable than we think. And just being out there and feeling it. Um, I I did one of the 1000s, I think maybe three years ago. And that was a crazy experience because I think a bunch of the girls and I were, were trying to just do turns. Like it was kind of like right. a smaller day, but it was also barreling. And we were like sticking to the left and trying to do turns and they weren't scoring us. And the minute that we pulled into closeouts, <laughs> that I remember my first closeout that I pulled in back door, I got a six and I made the heat and it was just like, boom, it clicked. Like, right. obviously they want us to like charge and they want us to, to get barreled, mm. obviously it's pipeline and back door. And so that was a really cool experience right. to just be out there with three other girls and, um, definitely got licked and, um, you definitely, it's a very humbling experience. I think that's a place where, um, you know, the ocean is a place where you need to respect and um, it's scary. Yeah. And anything could happen. It, it's such a fascinating spot because, as you said, you can go out there on a very, very big day and sit in the channel on the left at least, mm-hmm. and it's completely safe, right. you know, and watch it. I, you can't do that on the right. But, but like, you know, funny enough, like last year I was in a uh, contact tracing house. So I was locked in the backyard at pipeline for 12 days. Didn't get COVID, uh, but I had to stay there while we tested uh. every day. And outside of work, I weren't allowed to leave. I've never watched so much pipe in my life. And I, in my head, I, I learned, you learn so much just from watching it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm never going to go out there when it's huge. But like, I'm like, I feel like I got better just sitting in the backyard for 12 days straight. Wow. It, you know? so, I need to do that. Maybe just camp on the beach. There you huh? go. That's exactly And then also you pick your brain about pipeline. I know. Don't do that. If <laughs> if we're worried about jinxing. We don't do that. <laughs> we'll sit in the channel on the big day together. I'm into it. I'm, I'm totally into it. Well, we did put out uh, questions to the Instagram community and we got a bunch back, but we, uh, we whittled them down to three. Okay. So the first question is from at underscore Troy underscore Matthews, who asks, if you could share a lineup with one person past or present, who would it be? Wow. That's an amazing question. Hmm. I would share the lineup with my grandma. Hmm. Yeah. Or Dalai Lama. Hmm. <laughs> 
or Alan Watts. Sorry, that I had a, a lot of questions. That's a good lineup. You know, actually, I might change that. I will have to say Rel Sun. Okay, that's a great answer. Yeah, Rel Sun. Did you ever watch Heart of the Sea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one really, I think, hit me. She definitely had a connection with the ocean, unlike any other woman I've ever seen. Yeah, great answer. Maybe that might be a first, actually, for this one. <laughs> Second question is from at McKay underscore Holland, who asks, what's the biggest challenge you faced on tour? The biggest challenge, I would have to say, comparison and expectations. Mm-hmm. Good answer. And the last one from the Instagram community is from at McDonald228, who asks, what's the most intimidating wave you've surfed and what made it so? I would say the most intimidating wave I've ever surfed was cloud break during the pandemic. No one was out. I think there was one other guy and my dad just like dropped me out in the middle of the lineup. And there was a cyclone before that. So the tower wasn't there. I'm not even sure if it's still there, but felt like I was in the middle of the ocean and it was like blowing super offshore and cloud break is like is a beast and um definitely very humbling experience being out there but yeah I would say cloud break has definitely given me the shivers proper proper thunder reef yes I haven't surfed um thundercloud is that what's the outside reef fan yeah I think it's something like that something thundercloud I haven't definitely haven't served that (laughs) uh it was it was definitely solid and uh yeah i was definitely shaking for sure but it was really good experience good answer final segment it's now time for the lightning round presented by Michelob ultra pure gold lightning round okay 10 questions for you to answer as quickly as you can okay if you could have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? I would say twin fin. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Mm, pizza. Last book you read? Uh, How to Change Your Mind. Best surf film ever? Leave a message. One wave you never have to go back to? Never want to or never have yeah, to? Yeah, never want to. Uh, I would say face-offs. Where's that? <laughs> In Fiji. Okay. All right. It's, sounds like one you don't want to go back to. <laughs> if you only get to surf one way for the rest of your life. Lakey Peak. Best person to share a lineup with? Mm, my dad. Worst person to share a lineup with? Mm, anyone that snakes. <laughs> mm, plenty of those on, in, your, in your profession. <laughs> Last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by? By being patient, I think, with myself and singing and dancing and surfing while the music is being played. Love it. Brusa Hennessy, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Thank you so much for your candor and insights. Congratulations on your success this season and your perseverance, which is, <laughs> which is success in its own right. Can't wait to see what you do in uh, 2022. Thanks, Dave. It's, it's been an honor. And... Uh, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this year and I hope everyone as well. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Costa Rica's Brisa Hennessy. I hope you enjoyed it. Congratulations to Brisa and all our Challenger Series qualifiers for the 2022 WSL Championship Tour season. And while the season has completed for 2021, we have more news dropping in the coming weeks that I'm sure we'll be discussing on this very podcast. 
Do not miss it. This episode of The Lineup is produced by Henry Beyer with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The Lineup acknowledges that it's recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kumeyaay, and the native Hawaiian people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday.